I think it's one of the most fascinating things about this entire study is that those patients were straight up excluded from analysis. Hi, this is Alice, and you're listening to Peds Admin. Following both the literature and the news cycle this month about hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin as treatment options for COVID-19 has been quite a ride. In this episode, Shafali breaks down the literature that's been published so far. Now, we're residents and we're not attending physicians, but I think that she did this in a way that I found incredibly impactful. It changed both how I think about COVID-19 and how I intend to practice medicine moving forward. Without further ado, here's Shafali. All right, so let's start talking about hydroxychloroquine and azithro. Shafali, can you walk us through the mechanism of action of hydroxychloroquine? Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's helpful to think of it kind of in three different categories because it had such a broad range of utility. Mm -hmm. The first thing that it was used for was as an anti-malarial. So we can start with how it actually acts as an anti-malarial. Basically, it increases pH, and that's a theme that comes up a bunch of times. So it increases pH. Um, that in in doing so, it interferes with the ability of the digestive vacuoles within the malarial parasites to actually break down and degrade hemoglobin, specifically break down heme. So heme ultimately can build up, and it is a toxic byproduct of this degradation process. And it, in blocking that breakdown of heme, it exerts this anti-malarial activity because it's toxic to the malarial parasite. Oh, so the, the, this plasmodium parasite is inside the red blood cell. They have to break down hemoglobin. They break it down to heme and then hydroxychloroquine prevents the further breakdown of heme. The heme is toxic. It kills the plasmodium. Exactly. And it's important to note that chloroquine, which is like the, the cousin slash grandfather uh, in, in the same class of medications as hydroxychloroquine also acts at this point as well. Okay. So then we think about like the other places that it's used. So before COVID-19, the major therapeutic use was for a, like a, an array of autoimmune conditions, including um, systemic lupus erythematosus, Sjogren's syndrome, rheumatoid arthritis, number of other autoimmune conditions and rheumatologic conditions. In these diseases, the proposed mechanism of action is more of like an immune modulatory um, function. Okay. So in these autoimmune conditions, it basically blocks toll-like receptors on uh, dendritic cells. And in doing so, it kind of interferes with the activation of dendritic cells, which then leads to this inflammatory cascade and an inflammatory process. So that's kind of the thought for how it functions in autoimmune conditions. It's also known to increase lysosomal pH and antigen-presenting cells. Okay. So... It's blocking the the sort of creation of the inflammatory response. And then in the immune response, a virus infects, they present the antigen to antigen presenting cells. The toll-like receptor is inhibited like somehow sort of vaguely by hydroxychloroquine and then it prevents the broader immune response. Am I close? You're close. One thing I want to point out right there is that the actual antiviral mechanism of action is separate from this mechanism of action. So you mentioned what happens if a virus is, you know, comes into contact with the cell, but it's actually the antiviral part of this is that, well, let's be real. It's not fully understood. We're still figuring it out because obviously this entire pandemic is a, is a new thing. But so far, the studies have shown that it probably acts by, again, changing the pH and increasing the pH at the cell membrane surface, and that impairs the viral viral fusion and viral ability to kind of infect. Okay. It also 
most likely interferes with multiple steps in the viral replication and release process. So it inhibits nucleic acid replication, glycosylation of viral proteins, and viral assembly and release. So it has a number of different proposed actions, specifically in the setting of SARS-CoV-2. Okay, so it sounds like there are a lot of ideas about the antiviral activity, but it's it's sort of just general, like a less inhabitable environment. And separately affects the immune response, but we don't think that's helping and separately can kill malaria, but that's obviously not a factor here. Exactly. I think that probably the immune modulatory stuff does have an impact. Some papers were commenting on the fact that it's also known to kind of inhibit this inflammatory response. And as we've talked about with tocilizumab and remdesivir, part of the big issue is this like inflammatory kind of cytokine release syndrome, cytokine storm factor that plays in the clinical worsening of these patients. So we think it probably has some role there, but the primary mechanism is thought to be like interfering with the virus's ability to propagate, basically. Gotcha. This has been, and they, they did some like in vitro studies. Yeah, yeah. So there, there have been some in vitro studies coming out. Um, there's one in particular, we had actually mentioned it in a previous COVID update episode. Basically, it compared chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine in their ability to inhibit SARS-CoV-2 activity. And they found that hydroxychloroquine appeared to be slightly more of a potent inhibitor. Mm-hmm. So that paper had, had mentioned that they felt that that would be the better option. In terms of kind of comparing the two, chloroquine does have a much larger side effect profile, uh, which is funny because hydroxychloroquine has a pretty big side effect profile as well. <laughs> so two similar drugs. We think that hydroxychloroquine would like theoretically work based on the in in vitro studies and chloroquine has more side effects. What are the side effects of hydroxychloroquine that we should be aware of? Yeah, great question. I'm going to try to break this down as best as I can. And I, I want to like highlight yeah. if you were to search this and research this, there's a ton of adverse effects. I've tried to boil them down to the most like clinically pertinent ones to look out for. Mm-hmm. So we can kind of go by organ system. So from a cardiovascular standpoint, the big thing that you're going to hear about and see and have to monitor for would be QTC prolongation, okay, as well as cardiomyopathy. Another thing that people might remember mm-hmm. from med school, I feel like we did learn about it, was that you have to be aware of some ophthalmologic changes in patients who take it. So retinopathy, which is actually dependent on the serum concentration of the medication, so potentially dose dependent, mm-hmm. as well as a bunch of different corneal changes, corneal edema, opacity, sensitivity, as well as some nonspecific visual symptoms like visual disturbance, blurred vision and photophobia. So these are all pretty scary. (laughs) Yeah. And this is like, this is like why if a patient's on it pretty chronically, we'll send them to opto at a set interval, right? Yeah, absolutely. So from what I read up on people who are taking this for about five years or longer, so a pretty extended amount of time, Mm -hmm. you want to make sure you're doing annual opto screenings on them to make sure they're not developing retinopathy related to the medication. Okay. All right. And then what other organ systems are affected here? I think some other big things to hit um, from sort of a derm and immune standpoint, it's a drug that's highly associated with hypersensitivity reactions. So mm-hmm. in the spectrum, we have erythema multiforme, Steven Johnson syndrome, TEN, um, and DRESS syndrome as well. So you want to be looking out for skin changes in these patients as a potential kind of symptom that they're developing these reactions. Yeah, yeah. It can also lead to photosensitivity. Mm-hmm. And then from a GI standpoint, some nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, abdominal pain, 
in more serious cases, it can lead to a bump in your LFTs as well as liver failure, the worst case scenario. So this is one of those drugs that can cause a bump in the LFTs and we need to be mindful of that. Yeah, absolutely. Keep it on your differential if you were to have a patient who would then develop. Like a transaminase. Exactly. Yeah. Last thing I want to mention from a heme standpoint, it can lead to agranulocytosis, aplastic anemia, bone marrow failure, some, some pretty big things there. Um, and in patients with G6PD deficiency, it can lead to like a hemolytic crisis. So it's important that this is, uh, we look out for patients with that. Oh, wow. Is, does this look like it's like a relatively strict contraindication for people with G6PD? I know that we've got a lot of, we have a lot of patients with this diagnosis, right? Yeah, absolutely. And from what I can tell, it is a pretty well-known and pretty strict contraindication. And in fact, in some of the papers we're going to talk about, if you had G6PD deficiency, it was considered an exclusion criteria. Okay. So, I mean, I think the summary, <laughs> the one-liner here is that it's not a benign drug by any means. It's got the potential to have uh, many different side effects affecting many organ systems, something we really need to be mindful of. Right. Like, this is not a benign drug. COVID is not a benign disease. I don't, I could never fault a physician by, like, from what they know, giving this to a patient because I'm not in the position. And But then the question of, like, what would we want for ourselves and for our patients is to know in a more concrete way if it works or not, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think you just brought up, hit the nail on the head about the like the huge ethical dilemma behind prescribing this medication when it is known to have all these effects. You're right. We want what's best for our patients. We want some evidence that it actually works. And one thing I just want to point out, which we should have touched on before, but actually the thought to use hydroxychloroquine in the current pandemic came from the fact that it had been shown to have some antiviral activity in the SARS-CoV-1 and and the initial SARS infection from the early 2000s. So that's where the kind of evidence rolled over and led to this. Okay. So this is, that's sort of where people got the idea because a very, a very similar virus and and it shows some efficacy there. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Okay. So let's, I want to talk about all the, all the evidence we were able to find for this cocktail. Um, But first, can we just touch on azithromycin and why we think it might be helpful in COVID? Yeah, great question. Um, So azithro, I think start off with the stuff that many of us know, it's an antibiotic medication. So it, it exerts its antibiotic activity by inhibiting RNA-dependent protein synthesis mm-hmm. at the chain elongation step. It binds to the 50S ribosomal subunit, which at some point we did have to nail. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yes, yes. The 50S triggered something in me. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> the use in... So my understanding of the situation is that the, it's use in... Uh, SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19 infections is really the anti-inflammatory effects that it's known to have. Mm -hmm. So a number of studies have demonstrated that it has anti-inflammatory properties, particularly in lower respiratory kind of processes, including COPD, asthma. It the thought behind its anti-inflammatory effects are that it does specifically act on macrophages, but it basically prevents and suppresses the activation of like immune cascades that can lead to inflammation in the lower airways. Okay. This is sort of, there is evidence to show that that's why we would maybe give azithro to someone with COPD. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, And now, you know, I think it's really tough to say because obviously evidence is changing. And the tough part with COVID-19 is that these patients, the really sick ones at least, are having these really intense, uh, severe pneumonias and ARDS. And 
a lot of pulmonary involvement. So on the one hand, I think it primarily is being used for anti-inflammatory response, uh, I think, or anti-inflammatory effect. But I think it's fair to ask the question, does the antibacterial effect of it potentially prevent superimposed bacterial pneumonias from developing, things like that? I think it's an interesting question that there's not a lot of data for. Gotcha. No, that makes sense. Okay, so let's talk about the trials that we know, the trials that people have been able to publish from the trenches so far. The trial that sort of set the world on fire is the way that I like to think about it, because I remember this is the first thing that everyone was reporting on. Here in the U.S., we were clinging to as evidence that this works, Mm -hmm. was uh, a study uh, called hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin as a treatment of COVID-19, results of an open-label, non-randomized clinical trial. First uh, author, Gautre, Mm -hmm. Um, it's a study out of France. We can kind of break down. Yeah, wait, so this is the French study, right? Like this is the one that is referred to in the media. And what type of study was this? Great question. So it was an open-label, non-randomized controlled trial. And just breaking that down, um, the open-label component referring to the fact that like people, the physicians knew whether or not they, the patients were getting the drug, right? Exactly, exactly. The non-randomized referring to the fact that this, so unlike randomized control trials where patients are assigned to either the study group and experimental group and versus the control group, mm-hmm. we can, we're going to get into the weeds about how these patients were assigned to their groups, but it was not at all randomized. Okay. It was basically anybody who could be enrolled in the treatment arm was, and then the people who refused to be a part of it were the control group. Um, oh, wow. There's some additional nuance there. So that kind of breaks down what the study design was. Could you walk us through what they did? They are in the trenches, pandemic 2020, they're starting to enroll in a study. What did they do? Great question. So they, uh, the inclusion criteria for people that they were even approaching to enroll in it were that they did have to have a confirmed COVID-19 infection. Mm-hmm. They had to be above the age of 12 and they had to have documented uh, viral loads of SARS-CoV-2 in a nasopharyngeal swab sample that was obtained on admission. Okay. Once they met those criteria, they were then basically offered to be enrolled in the study and they had obviously the ability to not consent to it. And that is the first kind of decision point and branching point for the experimental versus the control group. So patients that declined to enroll in the study were put in this control arm. And the control arm was also made up by untreated patients from another medical center. So completely separate from the people who are studying this at the one medical center. So anyone that got the drug opted in to get the drug, not to get either the drug or placebo. Exactly. So there's some more nuance here. Once they Mm -hmm. got enrolled in the study and they consented and everything, they were then kind of grouped into three categories. Either if you were asymptomatic, you were in one group. If you had upper respiratory infection symptoms, including like rhinitis, pharyngitis, uh, and low-grade fevers, myalgias, you were put in another group. And then patients with the more significant lower respiratory tract, pneumonia, bronchitis type symptoms were in a third group. Gotcha. So they sort of grouped it by symptom. And would you call this by severity? It seems a little bit by severity, right? Yeah, you know, I agree. I think it's by severity. Yeah, basically, even though they actually they didn't comment on that necessarily. But if we think about the patients that are getting the sickest and dying from COVID-19 infections, pneumonia, 100%. Yeah. They also added azithro in some of these cases, right? Yes. And I think what's the most murky about this study is that they don't necessarily 
they don't necessarily comment on which patients were so like how the patients who received Zithro were were selected. They they say that patients with certain characteristics received Zithro, but they never actually elaborate more on how that decision was made. But I think it's important, big picture, 36 patients overall were enrolled, mm-hmm. 26 patients were in the hydroxychloroquine plus category in, in terms of like they were the experimental category, and then 16 patients served as controls. Okay. In that 26 people in the experimental arm, six of those received azithromycin. Gotcha. And I think what's interesting is in this paper in particular, they comment specifically on bacterial superinfection. So their goal, their aim was to prevent bacterial superinfection in these patients. Okay. Walk us through how they monitor these patients and how they ended up collecting their data. The trial basically lasted for 14 days. They had daily clinical exams and nasopharyngeal swab sample collections. They real-time reverse transcriptase PCR to run these samples and assess for viral load. Oh, wow. So they got a full viral load. They, they got a lot of data with that full viral load, right? They did. They did. That's basically what they used to track their hypothesis that this would potentially lower viral loads and potentially eliminate viral loads. Mm-hmm. Their endpoint, so it's important to note the experimental group got hydroxychloroquine at a dose of 200 milligrams TID, so total daily dose of 600 milligrams. Mm-hmm. They did that for a 10-day course. And then the endpoint for this trial was the presence or absence of, vi- of the virus as detected by the, that nasopharyngeal swab uh, PCR at day six after they were uh, started on the trial. Oh, so they wanted to see if they got better within the first six days, kind of. Yes. And it's really interesting that you mentioned getting better because what this study doesn't comment on is really the clinical correlation of how these patients did in comparison to their virologic progression. So they comment specifically on the virologic cure, which is to say they didn't have any, if they didn't have any detectable viral load, but they, they never actually really correlate with how do they do clinically. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. Because I mean, you would think, but then what if it's not the virus at a certain point? What if it's the cytokine storm or something? Absolutely. I think that's a really important point. So I want to clarify because it might have seemed misleading by what I just said, but they commented on some of the clinical courses of their patients. They did elaborate on them, but they didn't properly, in my opinion, correlate the two. So they, they just kind of mentioned these were the clinical courses of the patients that were enrolled. And it sort of was mentioned separately and discussed separately from the actual results of the study. Gotcha. Okay. So what kind of people ended up being in the study overall? So in terms of, yeah, the patient characteristics, so 41, about 42% of the study was male patients, so 15 males. The mean age uh, was 45 years. Oh, wow. That's not that old. That's pretty young. Yeah, it is pretty young, right? So that just goes to show like <laughs> stuff we thought about this being a problem for mostly older patients has really not been yeah. necessarily accurate. Yeah. So in terms of the, the three groups that I had mentioned before, about 17% of patients were asymptomatic. Mm-hmm. The majority in the group, 61%, had upper respiratory symptoms, and 22% or so had lower respiratory tract symptoms. Okay. And did they comment on who was in the ICU, who was ventilated, things like that? They absolutely did. I think we, we should go through that in a minute when we get to the results, because that's like an important caveat. Gotcha. Okay. Maybe one other thing to mention here would be that the, on average, the patients in the experimental group, so the hydroxychloroquine treated patients were older than the patients who didn't get it. So uh, 
treatment arm, average age about 51 years, mm-hmm. control group, average age about 37 years. So it's a pretty fair difference there. Wow. Yeah. They didn't, it's very interesting. They didn't necessarily break down for us the clinical pictures of the patients before they were in, had the COVID-19 infection. So we don't have great data in the study on what the comorbidities of these patients were, what their really what their clinical status was at all before they came in for this, which could definitely have an impact on how they, how their body was able to handle a COVID-19 infection on top of everything. Yeah, no, absolutely. Okay, so what did they end up finding? So they stated pretty unequivocally that hydroxychloroquine was effective in reducing at least detectable viral load in these patients. And they based that off of the fact that 70% of the patients in the treatment arm So this treatment arm includes those who just got hydroxychloroquine as well as those who got both hydroxychloroquine and azithro. Mm -hmm. 70% of them were virologically cured, meaning they had no detectable viral load at day six post-inclusion in the study, compared with only 12.5% of patients in the control group who achieved virologic cure. Okay. So, So the viral load went down more significantly. And then, but then the thing about this was that the group overall who got the drug just ended up being a little bit older. Yeah, there is definitely a disparity between the patients who are in the control group and the people who are in, in the experimental group in terms of their demographics. But then it was, yeah, there was a statistically significant difference ultimately, but the, the patient groups were a little different. Yeah. And a couple other things I want to mention here. So in their results, they commented on the fact that there was a significant, statistically significant difference um, between the hydroxychloroquine only versus hydroxychloroquine and azithro groups at days three, four, and five versus day six, in that the patients treated with both hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin, that, that small like subset of six patients or whatever, 100% of their group achieved virologic cure at day six compared to only 57% of patients who got only hydroxychloroquine, if that makes sense. So if you break it down a little bit further, what that's telling us is potentially the combo of azithro plus hydroxychloroquine allowed these patients to achieve like a true virologic cure in comparison to, yeah. What else should we know about the results? So they commented on the fact that the effect of the drug was higher in patients with symptoms of either upper respiratory or lower respiratory tract symptoms compared to asymptomatic patients. They, they commented that it was like statistically significant. However, they didn't really elaborate on the data and the figures or the actual body of the paper. Yeah. They also mentioned their own caveat, which was that one of the patients who was still positive uh, PCR-wise at day six, after receiving only hydroxychloroquine, got azithro on, on day eight. And then by day nine, she had cleared her viral load. I, they also comment that a patient who had cleared and tested negative on day six, then tested positive for a low titer at day eight. And I, the reason that I mentioned these two things is I think it just starts to highlight like the massive issues with the way that the study was, was done. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that they were just trying to move as quickly as possible, understandably in the setting of a pandemic. Mm-hmm. Just the getting the swabs they could, responding as best they could, but really with not ultimately not broadly generalizable results, right? Exactly. Because I think those two caveats that I pointed out, one of them highlights that 
we don't know how sensitive or specific the testing is. And we know now retrospectively that the sensitivity of this testing is really not that great. Mm-hmm. When we think about our, our what screening tests we use, we like to have sensitivities that are in the 90%, so to speak, but this has really been far lower than that. So yeah. I think having a patient that tests negative and then two days later tests positive is, is exactly highlights the flaw here that like, we don't know if virologic cure really has a really means that clinically that they're going to be improved or that they're totally cured. Yeah. I think also the idea that somebody received azithro after in combination with the hydroxychloroquine, and then they report that they had been cured the day after. It's hard to say whether it's the medication or the fact that patient had now been, you know, in, in terms of the, the infection course, potentially the patient naturally improved on their own, you know? And like, how does the sensitivity of the presence of the virus change as your viral load decreases at the tail end of an infection, right? Because you know that other woman who tested negative and then tested positive, it's just the part of me that wants to believe that a cure is out there and easily accessible to all loves the comment about the positive virus and negative virus after one day of azithro. That is not generalizable to our patients. 100%. And I think, you know, with an N of one plus some like questionable issues with the the time course of this patient's symptoms and when we would naturally expect her to get better, you know, at at day eight, day nine, um, I think really points out the fact that we can't use, these are not reliable uh, data. Not reliable, not generalizable. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I, of course, right at my level of training, this guy probably did the entire study in the time it would take me to, to draft an IRB, right? I, <laughs> right. I, I don't want, I think that, and the limitations you listed are also documented, but I think that the problem here is the fact that the, the press was able to put, pick it up, mechanism of action, a miracle occurs, and that now here we are, right? Exactly. I think that what's so fascinating about this, and I agree with you, we never mean to knock people who are doing like revolutionary clinical research that is impacting the globe. Uh, Because like you said, it's remarkable what they were able to do in such a short period of time. I just think now retrospectively, it's interesting to look back like from an academic perspective, like how what are the issues with research? And I agree with you, they did comment on some of these limitations on their own. But I think as time has gone by, and we have more data now, we can also start to say like, okay, they didn't necessarily comment on this, but this is a limitation and we can look at it a little bit more critically. Yeah. But I think broadly, like the main issue, which we actually talked about in our first or second episode, uh, was that this study did not comment. Like, again, I want to hit, hit home the point that the clinical course was like not taken into account almost at all. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, I think the way that it's been applied after this study was released was exclusively for patients who were critically ill. So I think we have to think about, you know, the study didn't didn't necessarily say use this for critically ill patients. It it published their findings. They they commented on them appropriately. And I think that the way that it was kind of taken and then twisted is is that it got applied to an area that maybe it shouldn't have been applied to. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay. And there are like a couple other papers that we could that we could mention that have sort of are these subsequent papers that we've got to discuss here? Yeah. So I think the next one I wanted to talk about is a great companion piece to this one because it was from another French group. And basically they, they almost entirely contradicted the the findings of the study Um, and then felt, felt that it was important that they publish their findings and what they, what they talk about uh, in their, in their article. So first, just to mention the title of it, it's called 
no evidence of a rapid antiviral clearance or a clinical benefit with the combination of hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin in patients with severe COVID-19 infection. The first author is Jean-Michel Molina et al. Mm -hmm. And so how many patients were they working with? Yeah, so what they comment on in their introduction is they were so kind of surprised and also kind of galvanized by the finding of the first study that we talked about that they wanted to see if this could help their patients. So Mm -hmm. I think, again, we have to highlight this small, very small study that they did um, was kind of dictated and driven by urgency rather Mm -hmm. than like a a good, thorough scientific process. So they looked at 11 patients who were already hospitalized. Mm -hmm. Um, They dosed them with both hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin. And again, this was all based on the fact that the initial study had reported that this was the optimal combination. Okay. A couple of things that they commented on that that initial study did not. So some demographic information for us, seven males, four females, Um, mean age of about 59 years. So, you know, not crazily different from the other study. Um, They did comment on the fact that eight of these 11 patients had pretty significant comorbidities that are already associated with poor outcomes. Um, And these include things like obesity. Um, Some of them had solid cancers, two of them had hematologic cancers, and one of them actually had an HIV infection. Wow. So they, they had some pretty sick people involved in their cohort. Exactly, exactly. And so they also comment on the fact that by the time they actually started these therapies, in terms of like the hydroxychloroquine and azithro, 10 out of 11 patients were febrile, they were already on supplemental oxygen mm-hmm. within so they were sick, I guess is my my other point. This cohort, these these guys all needed admission or these patients all needed admission. In the other cohort, it seems like a lot of them were asymptomatic and living their lives. Yeah, 100 percent. This was a very, I think, on the whole sicker group of patients than the other the other group was dealing with. Okay, so a couple of other things to note. Five days into the study, one patient died, two were transferred to the ICU. In one patient, they note that the hydroxychloroquine was not tolerated and both of them were discontinued on day four because of QTC prolongation. So further highlighting the point that like, this is a side effect to look out for. And this is an additive effect of both hydroxy and azithro, right? I know that azithromycin can prolong the QT too. And then we're giving both of them as sort of the COVID cocktail here. Yeah, 100% correct. It is absolutely an additive adverse effect because both of them are associated with it. So in their study, compared to our slam dunk initial study, they they found that in eight out of 10 patients who had the repeated nasopharyngeal swabs throughout, eight out of 10 of those patients were still positive uh, with for SARS-CoV-2 RNA on days five to six after treatment initiation. So in direct contrast to the prior study where by day six of inclusion, they were they were reporting like, a, you know, 100% improvement and resolution of the viral loads in the patients with hydroxy and azithro in that study in this situation. Uh, not at all dramatically different. Oh, and this is, and so they just took this cohort of 11 sick patients and swabbed them. And then they didn't have a group of 11 similar patients that weren't re- receiving the treatment that they swabbed because they really just wanted to show that the virus would persist even though they gave the treatment, right? Is that sort of, is that sort of the way we're framing, they framed it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree with that. So... <laughs> So where does that leave us? Right? Because <laughs> the other thing I want to say, and I didn't, I wasn't able to go through this third paper, but this second paper comments on another study from China 
I will mention the title and the first author here, a pilot study of hydroxychloroquine in treatment of patients with common coronavirus disease 19, aka COVID-19, first author Chen. Okay. This also commented this, you know, briefly, they, they said that the study that had reported no difference in the r- rate of virologic clearance at day seven with or without a five-day course of hydroxychloroquine. And more importantly, they commented in that study about no, no difference in clinical outcomes in these patients, which I think ultimately is potentially the thing that matters the most, right? Yeah, yeah. So this is, they also looked at like the length of stay and how long the fevers lasted and things like that, right? Exactly, exactly. They put into place um, some clinical criteria that we, we have now seen many other studies putting into place in terms of how they're monitoring clinical progression. This study did that, whereas unfortunately, the initial study really didn't comment on those things. So wait, so you mentioned that you had just like a couple more things about this that you wanted to leave us with. Um, What else should we know? What else should we keep in mind? Yeah, so I think if you want to kind of get to the heart of this and read something that could really inform and tell you about this whole story from start to finish, Uh I want to point us in the direction of uh, an ideas and opinions article that was published in the Annals of Internal Medicine very recently, about a week and a half ago, called A Rush to Judgment rapid reporting and dissemination of results and its consequences regarding the use of hydroxychloroquine for COVID-19. First author, Dr. Kim. Okay. This, I mean, from start to finish, like we've already commented on, really kind of highlights what is considered an acceptable level of, you know, flaw in a paper that's done in a study that's done urgently in, in the setting of a pandemic, and then other kind of flaws that are not as acceptable and that we should be a little bit more critical of, even in a paper that was, even in a study that was done so rapidly. Yeah. So what did Dr. Kim think about all of this? So they basically, this group highlighted the fact that from both a study design perspective and a data collection and reporting perspective, this was a flawed study. From a study design perspective, we've already talked about the fact that this was a non-randomized trial and the control group was derived of patients who just opted out and did not want to enroll mm-hmm. as well as patients in another medical center and it's the patients in the other medical center that are the most problematic we don't have data on the differences in standard of care at both medical centers and there could be a huge amount of variability that's not been even mentioned or controlled for yeah the nursing protocols the icu protocols all of those things a hundred percent exactly um, I think a couple other things we, we just have to point out. So in the experimental group, they had six patients who they said kind of did not, um, were lost to follow up. And when they actually, when you actually peel back, hey, why were those six patients lost to follow up and not included in the analysis? Let's break it down because it's super important. So three of them got transferred to the ICU. One of them died on day three of the study. Wait, so the patients that got sick enough to get transferred to the ICU, the patient, the unfortunate mortality, they just excluded them from the study. Exactly. And it's important to note that that patient who passed away was PCR negative on day two. So if we're talking about the validity of using viral load as a marker for disease. Wait, the patient that passed away, they already had documented a negative viral PCR, and then they ultimately... 100%. That is wild. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's one of the most fascinating things about this entire study is that those patients were straight up excluded from analysis. Wait, and this, this was six patients in the experimental group. In the experimental group, wasn't it, wait, did you say like 26 patients or something? This was not a small percentage of them. Exactly. 26 patients in total, six of them. 
Wow. Okay. All right. So what else did this group have to say? So they also commented, they really dug into the the particulars of how they ran their PCR. And they found that of the patients who received hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin, those patients actually started out with a lower viral burden. Uh, and those patients, as we know, are the ones that did better. So they commented on the fact that it was baseline viral load mm-hmm. that could have had an impact on these results rather than the actual efficacy of using hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin together. Okay, right. So they looked at the viral loads of their control group and, and just saw that they were in general higher. Mm-hmm. And I think something that's come up in a couple of areas as people are reading about how we're testing and screening for this virus is what the what the actual, they call it cycle threshold. I've seen it in a bunch of different papers. I think it's worth mentioning. Mm-hmm. A higher cycle threshold correlates with a lower viral burden. That is, I think, an important and not necessarily intuitive thing to mention. So interesting. Yeah. And then a lower, similar, like a, a lower cycle threshold means a higher viral burden. So they actually, they actually broke it down to like, what was the starting viral burden in all of these patients? Mm-hmm. And of the patients who had a higher, higher viral burden, they found that a smaller percentage of those patients achieved virologic cure compared to the other way around. So basically their, their big question is, Hey, and logically your baseline viral load probably does impact your viral load six days out. Right. When they look at the data, they thought, okay, how these people do depending on their different baseline viral loads, because that is not right. And I want to wait, can we, I want to drill down on the cycle threshold more because did you, I feel like everyone in medicine at some point in their life has run a bunch of trays of PCR in a lab, right? So, okay. So apparently the cycle threshold value of a reaction is defined as the cycle number when the fluorescence of a PCR product can be detected above the background signal. So the way that I'm picturing this, and I would love for someone to email me and correct me, but they're just running cycles of PCR. And then when they start to detect the RNA, then it's a, that's the threshold, but they're just like running through cycles of PCR until they find it. And so the cycle threshold is how many cycles they need to run through. And this is a lot of lab work. This is not a little bit of lab work. 100%. And just by explaining it like that, you highlighted the idea that if you have to run consecutively several cycles of so the number, that threshold, yeah. if that number goes up and up and up, that means that you're not detecting it earlier. You're detecting it later, which like intuitively really makes sense for why a higher cycle threshold number correlates with a lower viral burden. Right. Because it's like, how many times do you need to be denaturing, annealing, and extending? Right? Oh my gosh. Okay. Yes. And so they, but right? And then, wait, so these people were like, wait, but you did all these viral low PCRs. A, we trust them. B, we think it's a lot of work and we want to see how that correlates to outcomes. And they they were able to sort of look at the data and conclude that the people with a lower viral load did better, right? When they started. Mm-hmm, exactly. That's so interesting. So it it's fascinating. One last thing I want to point out is that because we've been talking about PCR, the only site that performed daily PCR testing was the was the main experimental site at the center of all this. Mm-hmm. The patients in the control group who were in other medical centers, a lot, if you actually dig into the data, they didn't have consecutive testing for a lot of those patients proportionally. Oh, wow. Yeah, the control patients were missing samples. Right. They swapped them when they could swap them, right? Like they weren't there to do it every day. Exactly, exactly. So they found like this, this report commented that like 75% of patients in that control arm were missing at least one day of a PCR result, at least one PCR result, if not more. Whereas the patients of the experimental group had a lot more consistent data. So again, you are kind of like, if you're saying that this was better than the control group, but you're missing a lot of data points in the control group, and you're not necessarily commenting on it. That is a problem. Wow. 
I think, again, that we've kind of really done a, a super deep dive here. But if there's something to take away from here, it's that in the setting of a crisis, there is a huge leeway, I believe, for how much how much methodologic flaw we're willing to accept in a study. Uh-huh. We're accept we're willing to accept a lot because we want, like you've said, to protect our patients to do what's best for them so that they don't die, right? And this is what we're doing. And so we accept a lot. But I think what this kind of opinion piece also points out is, hey, we accept a lot, but there are certain concrete things here that probably shouldn't have been done, or at least should have clearly been explained in the body of the of the paper when it came out. Yeah. And you need to just, I mean, be transparent so that someone can look at everything and really, and think, you know, because, yeah, does viral load correlate with clinical outcomes? I think that's important. I agree that I would prefer that hydroxychloroquine and azithro be a cure, but. Yeah. Gosh, so where does it lead us? Or where does it leave us, rather? I think that, honestly, at the beginning of this, we were, you know, the first in the first couple episodes where we talked about this, we were already kind of couching our discussions and the fact that, hey, the evidence is really limited. We have no idea. We don't want to build this as a cure or even something that can, you know, be a slam dunk treatment. And I, I think, unfortunately, it lands us in the same place. I think you have to weigh the massive side effect profile, potential for drug-drug interactions, your patient's other comorbidities. You have to think about all of those things, mm-hmm. as well as you know their clinical status in terms of their COVID-19 infection and kind of come to a conclusion about whether it's something that would be worth trying. I think that what this does is just highlight that that initial study, unfortunately, was not as, I guess, airtight or was not as overwhelmingly supportive of using hydroxychloroquine and azithro, unfortunately. Yeah. And now we're in a, we're sort of in a situation where not only does, you know, the press, everyone have time, they don't really have time to critically appraise the evidence and we don't have enough masks. We don't have enough PPD and we really don't even have enough hydroxychloroquine and azithro to give this a fair shot in everybody, even if, even if we shouldn't. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely. So this has kind of led to so many downstream implications that are mostly negative, actually. Yeah. Which you pointed out. So it's something we have to keep in mind. And I think, I think I kind of, my interest in this whole thing is it, once you start to peel back the layers, you know, we have this one study that came out and that was the only thing at that point in time. And then once we have, you know, literally in the past two weeks, things have changed so dramatically, right? So as you sort of peel back the layers and look, you know, increasingly more closely at that initial study, you start to see really some massive flaws that, um, again, get lost in lay press and reporting. I mean, it's hard to communicate like scientific nuance right. in a soundbite on like NPR, right? And we all want to believe so badly that there's a well-tolerated drug that would help, right? These these patients are sick. The one thing that we want is for them to have options. Exactly, exactly. And I think that you just pointed to the the kind of overarching issue here, which is that a lot of the stuff that we're trialing in the U.S. is compassionate use. We don't have data really to support it, right? And, you know, the data that we had in the case of hydroxychloroquine is probably a lot more flawed than we initially thought. So it's not necessarily to say that we should never have trialed it or never have used it. But again, like we've been talking about, we want to do what's best for our patients and we will try things if they are otherwise seem to be decently tolerated, right? It's that risk versus benefit always. And the same can be said for the other treatment modalities we've talked about, including remdesivir, tocalizumab, and the convalescent plasma transfusions. Mm -hmm. We, we, 
a lot of it is still unknown, but we're using it as quickly as we can because we don't want our patients to be dying. Well, this is the best argument that I've ever heard for reading the original paper yourself. And we can't wait to dive into the next publication. Me too. This is great.